Hi, I'm Anna Rosa Parker. And I'm Daniel Lamb, and this is Artist Inclusive, the podcast for ambitious artists who want to find clarity, community, and creative success. So today on the podcast, we have consummate professional and actor Jennifer Van Dyke. Anna, you want to intro this one? Yeah, I mean... I'm very excited to to share this interview with with Jennifer. I think she's just such a graceful, lovely actor, and she's been in this industry for a long time and done all kinds of work. And I just, it's rare to meet people who are that consistent and persistent in this industry. So why don't we just dive in? And she shares quite a bit of great insight and I'm just inspired. I'm inspired by her. All right, let's dive into our conversation with Jennifer Van Dyke. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the Artist Inclusive Podcast with us today. Pleasure. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you about everything you're doing these days and, and just your your career. Let, let's let's get to it. What <laughs> how do we how do we do this? Yeah. Yeah. So well, so for listeners who may not know you yet, can you talk a little bit about your background and your story? How'd you and then how'd you get your foot in the door with acting? And when did you decide and when did it become clear that you could do this as your career. Well, it, it goes way back to about when I was three years old and I decided to be a tightrope walker and I uh, practice around the, the edge of our living room rug and I'm, I'm balancing. And I never get off the ground. I'm just balancing on the rug. And I remember my mother saying, you know, if you want to be a tightrope walker, you're going to have to practice hard. It, it takes a lot of work. And uh, cut to, I didn't run away with a circus, but I always knew I wanted to act. <laughs> That there was never anything else I was going to do. And I don't know. I mean, I come from my dad was a minister. My mother is a retired special ed teacher. So there is, an, I guess, an element of performance in my in my background, but no, no actors. But I just always wanted to do it. And so, you know, I put on plays in the backyard. I did plays at school and I, I went to a liberal arts college where I did as many plays as I could. But I had this incredible teacher who said to me, Look, it's clear you're going to do this with your life. But while you're here, here is the list of teachers that you have to study with. And he gave me this incredible list of teachers. I never got through the list. I mean, it was more, I needed 12 years of college to study with everyone that he recommended. But it was economics and history and political science and comp lit and English and history. I was in an incredible school and I should learn everything I possibly can. I ended up majoring in religious studies and theater. So very useful degrees. But I also, I just, I knew this, I, I knew that I would be acting. I didn't know how I would be acting. As fate, luck, chance would have it, I uh, was able to graduate. I went to school at Brown, which is in Providence, Rhode Island. And there's an incredible theater resident company there called Trinity Rep. And I literally, I taken time off, a semester off to do a show in Boston. So I finished mid-year and long story short, a voice teacher who introduced me to the assistant of the artistic director at Charity Rep. I met with her. I invited Richard Jenkins to come see a play at Brown. I got an audition and I literally graduated. I finished school like on the 23rd of December and started rehearsal for the Crucible on the 26th. So it was uh, an amazing launching place because that company, I mean, theater is a, is a craft that you, you learn by doing and watching and seeing how others do it and being in a company where some of them had been together for 20, 25 years at that point, there was no better education than I could ever have because everyone works differently. But when you're in a, an environment where everyone trusts each other, 
you don't have any of the getting to know you. How do you do this? How do you work? How do I work? And so I got to watch these pros and be a part of the company and then did many shows there. So I was rehearsing during the day and performing at night. So I was just in an immersive environment from the get go. And that's immediately, you know, as you graduate. So that's incredible. You get into a repertory theater and, and in the crucible that sets you up for what's to come or what, what happens after that. Yeah. And I had many friends who, who went to grad school and I just knew that wasn't my, I had no interest. And that's another way of learning by doing, but I chose this other way of learning by doing. And it, and it was, it was the right thing for me. And then I, w I was there for a season and then I went toured with the show and then I, I came to New York basically a year and a bit after I graduated or a year and a half later or something. And, and New York has been my whole ever, ever since. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when you, so when you come with that, you have graduated and you're with equity theater for over a year. That must set you up pretty well going into New York or it's, I'm sure it was still a hustle or do you it's want to always a hustle. <laughs> New York just is a hustle. Yeah. It's, this business is a hustle. I had also worked during some of my summers at Brown at Williamstown Theater Festival, which was a crazy place back in the day. But that was another chance where I watched incredible actors and was doing, I was doing tech work. I was doing box office work. I was doing, I was doing everything I could possibly do as well as being in the acting company eventually. But that was also another bit of my toolkit was filled also with those experiences. So when I came to New York, I had the experience of Trinity. And because of my work there, I came to New York with a manager, which was a very lucky and, and necessary thing to have in terms of opening doors. For my first few years, I was still going in and out of town a fair amount. I mean, I always go mm -hmm. in and out of, I'm out of town right now. You go where the work is. But it also set me up with, I, I was able to meet commercial agents. So I started doing both voiceover and on-camera work. And that's that's something I've done throughout my career. Later on, that evolved into audiobook work. And so that also is something that is part of my toolkit that you you have to always kind of one one part of your your one part of your work is quiet unemployment there's nothing happening and you find work in other areas so you just keep moving the pieces around so i remember i i had a very nice stretch where there was a lot of voiceover work and then it started to wane a little bit styles change voices change they're looking for different sounds and i'd always wanted to do audiobooks and i said to my agent how do i get into that and she was great and set me up with we did a demo and set me up with a producer and i started well That's a ridiculous story. My first audiobook <laughs> was Monica Lewinsky's memoir. So go back to 1990. No way. Oh my God. That is. What a gold. great way to start. <laughs> And it was so ridiculous because it was so top secret. Audiobooks always come out wow. in conjunction with the, the printed book. So it's all timed and they, but they didn't want any inch of gossip to get out into the world. I had to send, sign a non-disclosure agreement. And I also was not given this manuscript until I'd stepped into the booth, which is not how audiobooks work. You always get the manuscript you prepare. In the old days, I used colored pencils. Now I use, I annotate. But I mean, you mark your pages. You, you know what you're going to read. I didn't know what I was reading. So we... <laughs> so the, the producer whole like, read, the whole book. A or, cold read. We, literally, yeah. we got the manuscript, which is <laughs> in the olden days, right? We had pages. So... We literally went into opposite corners of the studio and sort of leafed through it to sort of see what the structure was. 
and then started recording and we made some basic decisions. Like, I'm not going to try to imitate Monica Lewinsky. I'm not going to try to imitate Clinton. I'm going to do a, it's a third person read. But we also, it's so old school that they were recording on DATs at that point. We weren't doing digital. Well, it was, it was not cassettes and it was, but it was not. Anyway, someone had to come in and collect these little tiny tapes and they were editing it as we went. So we would finish a tape and the editor would sneak in, grab the thing and go and start editing it so it could all get done in time. Uh, It was insane. And needless to say, I was assured that that would never happen again. And it's, it's true that that is, that was a one of a kind experience. So yeah, you, you deal with what you get. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's just incredible. I'm going to listen to that right after this. (laughs) It was a big seller somehow. Everyone well, knew everything at that point anyway. By the time the book came out, there, all the, there, there were a few, few little juicy bits of gossip, I guess, but most, most of the information was in the public domain. Hopefully. Wow. So, wow. So that was really, I mean, that was one of the questions we also had for you, you know, how you go from TV and then theater and, and then you realized you wanted to do audiobooks. That's pretty clever. Are you still doing those? Are you still doing audio? Like, yeah, I do. Like, so yeah. During the pandemic, built a home studio. I've always worked in commercial space in studios because I live in Midtown, Manhattan, and it's loud. So having a studio isn't ideal. But during the pandemic, it was very quiet. So yeah. there, was no, there was nothing, there was no construction. So I was able to record books and another, I do long form journalism. I do a bunch of things. And I was able to do that from home. Now that, but literally, as soon as the city started opening up last summer, the noise started infringing on my ability to record you know i could work at night but but it's my i still really prefer working with an engineer and having another set of ears listening in but it was a good skill i learned i learned how to do all those things that you need to do to self-record so that was it was a, a, a learning curve but it was that's we adapt that's what we have to do as actors. yeah absolutely absolutely so, piggybacking off of this idea of being adaptable can you talk a little bit about what your perspective has been around being nimble and being able to stick with the changing things on a long-term basis. I think one of the most important things you can be as an actor, well, let me, let me go back in time because back to when I was trying to be a tightrope walker, my family always jokes that I was the one in the family who <laughs> liked to know what was happening where. I was that kind of kid. What's happening next? What's where, you know, this... The, the big joke was we we moved where our dining room table was, and I was so furious as a little girl that to, that I I insisted that the family stay that the table stay where it was. I mean, I probably for a week, but but uh, <laughs> it was it, it was that kind of certainty that I liked in my life, and then I adapted and we had dinner in another room, and that was okay. But but the point being that I was a, a real uh, I liked certainty, and I've chosen the most uncertain profession. One of the most uncertain professions that yeah. you're in because you never know what's next. So being nimble to me means being able to take the given circumstances, which are who knows how long the job will last. Well, first of all, if you'll get the job, once you get the job, how long the job will last, where, what will happen next? Who's going to, what, what, what relationship that you've, you have with the director is going to lead to more work. What theater will ask you back again? What producer that you've worked with the television circles? But I just had an experience. I mean, this is the crazy thing about our work. I just shot a short film before I did this play that I'm doing with a director who called me out of the blue, who I worked with 30 years ago. And he was putting together this really short film shot on a shoestring budget over 
basically three days, but it was something I hadn't seen in 30 years. And he, it was just this wonderful sort of kismet. I mean, there, the, we, I, we hadn't even stayed in touch and, and then he reached out and then we got to spend this time together and it was a wonderful project. It's those kinds of relationships where you just say, yes, I'm, I'm so glad that I knew you, that we worked and that now all these years have passed and yet we're back in each other's lives again. Yeah, um, that you build along the way as you, because you're in it for the long run. You've been doing this for a little while. Absolutely. So I can imagine that you built great relationships. And I didn't want to interrupt, but I maybe you can tie it in because we were also curious, curious about self-generated roles and yes. versus being cast on an open in an open market kind of a thing. Well, one of the best things you can do as an actor is be friends with playwrights. So one of the most rewarding relationships of the past 10 years for me has been with the playwright and actor Charles Bush and the director Carl Andres, who is, they, they are, they, they have worked together for many years before I met them. And then through an audition, through my agent, I didn't know either of them. I auditioned for a play called The Third Story that we did first out at La Jolla Playhouse. And then we came to MCC in New York. And then after that, Charles started writing plays with me in mind and, and other people. He, he writes with people in mind. And I've now done, I don't have the count, but it's like six different plays in nine or 10 different productions. Cause his plays often start off, off Broadway theater for the new city and then they'll move to another theater. And it has been one of the most rewarding relationships in my career because what wow. started as a, a one off was a job out of town turned into this relationship where he knows what I bring to the table. I know what he brings to the table. And it ups both of our games. And it, it's been just a pleasure to mm -hmm. be a part of his company, which isn't a set thing. It's a, it's a moving force. It's not the same group of people all the time, but he does write for, for people over and over again. And, and that has been an incredible thing. So, so no, get, get, get to be friends with playwrights because they are making yeah. work. And That's beautiful. I, I've never said to him, you know, I'd really like to play a this, that, and the other thing. He literally throws out the craziest things and says, I want you to play an old lady and a little boy. I want you to play a whorehouse madam and an opera singer. The last play I did with him, The Confession of Lily Dare, right before the pandemic, I got to play five different parts in the course of an evening with madcap costume changes in between. Each of them couldn't be more different than the other. And it was just this, and to act with Charles and this other incredible company through that, the whole thing. And it was, uh -huh. it was just... That's like a dream for an actor, right? Yeah. And the flexibility that he brought to me, which is that in terms of being nimble, is that for so long in my career, I'd done a lot of classical work. I'd done a lot of very serious plays and people sort of want to pigeonhole you, or at least the business does. Mm -hmm. Like she does Hedda Gabler. She does, they, they, they want to, they want you to, they want to put you in the smallest box possible. And so when I started doing Charles's work, which is ridiculous and silly and serious and moving and outrageous. It's all these things, but there's a lot of comedy involved. And uh, people were surprised by that. And I've, I've, and that was thrilling for me to be able to surprise people. So part of being nimble is also taking the opportunity and, and running with it. Yeah. I'm not more thing. None of us are one thing. Yeah. But yeah. So in, people hadn't seen you do comedy before. They'd seen you I mean, do not more classical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not a lot. So that was, that was nice. And I, and my television and film work, I'm, I'm usually cast very, Seriously, lawyers, doctors, lawyers, doctors. Yeah. 
world weary mothers, you know, that, that I remember that started happening. I was like, <laughs> Oh God. I was like, former, her youth is gone. And yet she still has, you know, you know it's that. Like, right. You're like, all right, all right, here we go. But it, it, so it's nice, to, it's nice to, to shake it up. Comedy is one of the hardest things to do, but it's deeply rewarding. Yeah. That must have been so fun for you to surprise people and to show up uh, in comedic roles. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When you, you, you mentioned sometimes it's quiet and you've obviously done an amazing job finding work. And, but so when you have those quiet moments, are they long? Have you had long, quiet moments in your life? Oh, there are always ups and downs and highs and lows and periods where you think you will never work again. And the pandemic was particularly trying because our profession didn't just slow down, it evaporated. That, that's a, that's a whole conversation unto itself. But there have always, there, by definition, you are unemployed a lot of the time. While you are unemployed, you are looking for the next job, which is an, which is a profession unto itself. You just don't happen to get paid for it. So it, it can be very challenging to keep your, your focus on not woe is me. Who am I? If I'm not working, what, what am I without my career, without a role, without anything? But you, but it's part of your job. That, that is actually part of the job. And yes, the tricky okay. part is you'll be paid for those auditions, but you have to work at them like your life depended on it because it, because it does. One of, I mean, one of the ways I, I've always found living in New York is the best. What's a petri dish? I mean, how else to put it? There, there is, there is something for everyone. There is every yeah. kind of person. You can people watch for days. I, I live just a few blocks from Central Park and I'm in the park. Well, almost every day because I run in the park, but also during the pandemic, it was my backyard. It's always my backyard, but it was particularly vital during COVID. But you also have extraordinary museums. I, I find going to the Met, going to Lola, going farther afield to the Museum of the City of New York or Il Barrio or Brooklyn Museum. I mean, just filling yourself with inspiration from other sources is so essential. Sometimes when I'm not working, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to, I mean, I love seeing my friends in shows. Sometimes it's hard to get as inspired by the medium you want to be in when you're not in it. <laughs> but so yeah. I find art looking at what other people have created is just so important. And you need to constantly fill the coffers because what we got is, is our, is our bodies, our, we, this is, this is, this is what we use. That's our, the, ins, that's our instrument, but it literally is, it's our, it's our tool. I mean, that's, that's, that these are, these are what we use. So we, you have to, you have to exercise. You have to be ready to do whatever is required. You have to be mentally exercised and ready to absorb because when we get jobs, they happen like the next day. That's the other thing. Rarely do you know three months in advance that you're doing something. So you often go, Oh my God, I had nothing. And now I'm shooting tomorrow. And I have to learn the script. Get ready. I mean, this, this play that I'm doing right now, I'm doing something called Sister Sorry at Barrington Stage Company in Pittsfield. And it's a, it's a two-hander. So there were a lot of words and I won't go into the gory details, but there was a lot of drama, not on stage in the first week of rehearsal. No need for details except to say that what was already a short rehearsal period got even shorter. And, and I hadn't done a play for a year and a half. And I, my brain, uh, absorbing an incredible amount of lines. It's a muscle and you have to exercise the muscle. And uh, I was really scared in a way that I'm not usually about learning lines, but I was like, I haven't done this in a long time. You're doing a marathon and you have to train. 
I'm curious, can you talk about that a little bit, that how you stay in shape mentally and with your brain? You know, you talk about that's a muscle. So how do you, and what did you do during the pandemic to, to stay in shape? I, I did Zoom plays and readings and I found them deeply dissatisfying. I mean, glad that the form is there, but it really doesn't match up. But it was, and I, and I watched some stuff that other people were doing, but I, I, again, I did find it deeply unsatisfying for the most part. I mean, there were some beautiful things and innovations that people did with Zoom, but none of that stuff was memorized. I mean, it was, it felt good to exercise pretend art of acting in a Zoom format, right? It's not the same. I, I got involved actually again through Charles Bush, but with a director in London who was putting together these, we were doing classical works and Tennessee Williams and Noel Coward. And that was actually thrilling because we were working with Charles and I were in New York. Everyone else was in London. And it was this great chance to stretch those muscles with a group of, with strangers across the ocean who have a different way of working, have a different relationship to Noel Coward, have a different relationship to Tennessee Williams, certainly. And so that was that that expanded my brain. But again, we're we're reading. So as far as 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 memorizing, I I didn't do it for a year and a half. I mean, auditions, of course. And and as, as television and film came back, I started doing some some TV of Law and Order, this new new thing called organized crime. But that's all short term. So you, you learn a couple of pages. That's not the same as learning a whole play. So I guess I had little exercises in memory usage and then just went in. I mean, what we do, it's very funny when you try to describe to somebody who doesn't do what we do, what your day is. Because yeah, rehearsal may only be six hours, but you're actually working 18 hours in that day because you are, in my case, running in the morning or doing Pilates doing going to rehearsal, taking a little walk in between and then hitting the script with a dinner break, but for another six hours potentially. I mean, your your brain is just even when you're not actually holding the script, you're working over the material. Right. It's going right. into your brain. You're thinking about it. You're thinking about the character. You're thinking about what was terrible in rehearsal. You're thinking about what worked. You're thinking about who this person is. So I, I feel like all of that is about stretching the brain making room for this new character. And it's hard to describe to people who, who's, they can, people, for people who can leave their work behind. They leave the office, they close the door and go on with their life. I have been basically a bad analogy, but a monk for, for the last month working on this play. And now, now we're up and running. And really today is the first day we opened last night that I, I was like, Oh, there's room in my day. There's a little room in my day. Cause after this, I will, I will need to start thinking about the play for tonight, but, and just focusing on it. It's not about lines anymore. It's about putting my attention to it. I have a friend, a wonderful actor, Dana Ivey, who always said, I worked with her years ago and she said, you know, when I'm doing a play, I do one thing a day besides the play. One thing. And when I was younger, I was like, one thing. I can do this. I can do that. I can do that. And I have found that there is a lot of truth in that in terms of the focus that is required to get up there tonight and do what I have to do in front of an audience. And if you're scattered, if you're doing a thousand things, if you're expending energy in other places, you're not helping your work and then what you have to give to the audience that night. Yeah. So it's an interesting, I, I, I keep that in mind. I don't always succeed in doing only one thing, but I, I try to think about that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's beautiful. Well, happy opening, first of all. And what is the one thing you do? Well, today I'm doing a podcast. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so it depends. it depends. My husband's coming to visit tomorrow. We want to go to Mass Mocha. So, you know, that'll be a day. We're going to go, you know, there are things like that, that, that you, you pick you pick one activity 
in a day that, that takes up a couple hours of the day. And then you get ready for that show that night. And are you able to have fun and, and leave the work behind for those two hours ish? Well, obviously not today because we're talking about your work. I'll, I'll let you know about this. This play is very consuming. Yes. Yes. There. It's interesting. If when you have the privilege of doing a long run, you get into a different pattern because your day, the show is going to, is, is running and that it's not ending in a week. This show I'm doing right now, the whole run is three weeks. So it, it's already, we've just opened and we now only have 10 days left. I mean, it's, it's very, so the whole time I'm doing this, it'll be about the play. When you're doing the longer run, yes, you can do, you can get into a rhythm where you wake up and the day there's, there's room for, a, for other things in your day. But again, that's a, that's a privilege. A long run is a, is a, is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Are you, do you do those often? I mean, before and, and hopefully after pandemic, but you've been doing some, like, what's the longest run you've done, for example? I've done a couple of plays for nine months. That's nine the, months. Yeah. That's the longest. Yeah. And yeah. then that becomes, and, and can you still make it exciting for yourself or for each performance? Yeah. It's a good play. And these both, these experiences <laughs> were, were incredible plays. One of them was Dancing at Lunasa by Brian Friel, which I did on Broadway for, I mean, it was just the most extraordinary play. It just fueled you. I mean, it just gave you much more than you could ever give it. And one of the other long runs was Charles Bush play at the Divine Sister that we did at the Soho Playhouse. And actually that, that's a whole different thing. It was comedy. It was physically absolutely exhausting. I think I ached the entire nine months, but it was so much fun and so exhausting. That was a, that was a different kind of like, it was physically exhausting and, and vocally exhausting. So I really did have to cut down on everything except the play because of what was required at night. And then there have been other, other, again, it, it, it just depends on, on the, on the play. Every, every play is different. That, yeah. That's also part of being nimble. You just know that you can't have a set pattern because it's going to change. It's right. whatever the play is, it's going to ask you to do something different. Yeah. Uh, and that's always been okay for you. You're able to move the, move away from the dining well, table. Again, as a, yes, the person who liked everything to be just right. It's hilarious to me that that, that because it, it just, I, I picked a life that that just doesn't, it just does, there's no place for that. So, I mean, I do have rituals in terms of how I prepare in terms of that. Again, they shift with the play, but, but I know that I need to physically warm up, to vocally warm up. Every dressing room is different, but how I use the space, how I interact with my fellow players before the show, it's different with every show, but with this show I'm doing now, I'm working with an actor named Christopher Sears, and we wait backstage together before, as they give the curtain speech, and then as we go up, and that's become our ritual. And so that you, I know that there will be some ritual. I don't know what it is leading up to, to each show. So again, you can say there will be a ritual, but I don't, but I will adapt and change according to the circumstances. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like you're very, you, you're able to live in the, in the now and, and just go with the project and adapt to. And find your own moments in life and, and build around it in a way. I try to. I mean, I try to. That's, that's the goal. There, there is, let, let's not make any builds about it. There is always the highs and the lows of our profession are crazy. The, the first, the first night that I did this play, it, we're in COVID time. So it's a, a very good sized theater. It's, I don't know, 550 or something seats. And I walk out and I, 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 I directly address the audience. 
And the way I never see the audience because the lights, thankfully, except for my first moment, because there's a light that goes out in the audience and then blinds them to my entrance. So I can come in not seen. But when I come in, I see them. And that first night, a COVID audience is what would in normal times be an empty house, right? They are spaced. It is 50% capacity. And so you look out at this beautiful theater, orchestra, mezzanine, red seats, and all I see are red seats. Now, of course, half of them are filled with people in little, little groups. But in normal times, that would be a disaster. You'd be like, this is awful. There's no one out there. And as a result of that, you don't get, when people aren't sitting next to each other, you don't get that communal, that feeling, mm-hmm. that, that you can feel a breathing. You can feel them. This plando is not a comedy. So it, you're, it, you're not waiting for huge guffaws, but you're waiting for, res- there's a response that's part of the give and take of doing a play. And it's just very different when people are isolated into pods of two and three and four people. It's so interesting. I didn't think about that. Just, oh my God. Know, and I yeah. came off Christopher said to me, how was it? I said, it was terrible. <laughs> I thought I was marooned on a desert island talking loudly into a, just a vacuum. And it just seemed absurd. Now, several performances in, you know, it's a, it's a privilege and it's an incredible thing to get to do theater inside a theater, inside, indoors right now. Mm-hmm. With, with, they've got a very strict policy. You have to show proof of vaccination. You have to, I mean, they're really making it very clear that this is, we have to be careful. But but that's not how we normally go to the theater. We go to escape, to go to another place, you know. So hopefully, once they show their passes, they can go to another place when the lights go down. Yeah. But it is absolutely, I, I cannot make, there are no bones about it. It is bizarre. It is bizarre. And I am really grateful, really grateful to be doing a play right now. But I really, really look forward to getting to the other side of this way of the world. Now, it's going to take a long time. So. So we have to get used to this. And, and it just, it changes. Everyone says, you know, like the, once you make a podcast and you print it, you, 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 you do the edit and you put it out there and it's done. And a movie, you do your part, the editors do their magic and then it's done. It's up there. But what we do, it changes every night, every minute within that night. It's something else happens because your fellow actors do something. The temperature changes. There's a noise outside. There's some reaction from the house you've never heard before. It's different every time. Every time, yeah. Uh, that makes sense, but it's so interesting what you were saying about the pandemic and, and uh, the social distancing in the theater, how much you, you feel that. Because I was thinking just selfishly, okay, at least they're going to be, because I feel like in the last few years, the Broadway seats get smaller and smaller, or maybe I'm just getting bigger. I don't know, but you know what I mean? I feel like we're just crammed in there. I'm like, oh, social distancing is going to be a little bit of a luxury. But now it's that puts a whole different spin on it. Yeah. It doesn't have that same energy from their yeah. house. Yeah. We rely on the audience is the final ingredient. You can tech to your heart's content and get all the elements in place, the lights, the sound, the music, the whatever it is. And then it's the audience. I mean, that that's what makes it a play. You, you don't, we don't do it to an empty space. And so. It's, it's taken a real sort of mental adjustment on my part with, with this play and, and, and for the foreseeable future. And I mean, it also is true for television and film. These, these projects that I've done in the past six months, it, it changes not the final product. No one will know that every member of the crew was masked, had a face shield that you were di- distanced when you weren't shooting, that you put your mask up as soon as the director says cut. I mean, the whole the process of making what we do now 
is absolutely altered. In some ways, very much for the best, because we are nothing but we usually work in rabbit warrants. You know, theaters are these tiny little spaces with tiny dressing rooms and narrow corridors with no windows. Sets are usually not fresh air anywhere, and you're with 50 to 100 people all glommed into a, into a room and you know, making this thing happen. And and that's all had to change. And it, it's changing, again, not what you will see on your television or in the movie theater, if you go into a movie theater ever again, but it it is it, it changes the process. Yeah. And in film and television already, there's so many stops and starts because of the technical nature of the business. But then you add on the mask that you hide in the pocket of your costume or the shield that you hand off to you know, some, someone who's waiting for it so that you can then do the work that you have to do. There are just all these other elements that you have to, that we, that we, that are necessary. Yeah. Uh, and then no and, socializing. We had Helen Hunt came on that episode on the podcast the other day and she talked about how nobody could go and have coffee together after work. Like it's very isolated and lonely in a way. Right. And, and still already, you know, you go to your trailer, you go, you're already sort of during the work day, you're, when you're not, actually shooting you're you're by yourself but but yes then the socializing around those things even just at at lunch break you would all the crew everyone would be together and that that's not happening you get your go back to your trailer eat alone and then get back i mean it's it's very it's very different yeah yeah so i was thinking maybe let's let's shift this just a little bit because a lot of the things that you've brought up today really represent some of the most important pillars of mindset, things like discipline, resilience, structure, ritual, routine. Could you talk a little bit about your approach to mentoring other actors? Because that's something else you do, right? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, uh, I'd love to talk about that. I Last night, I my guest for opening was this young actor, Evan Silverstein, who he and I did a play together two years ago. I played his mother in Edward Albee's The Goat, and we've stayed in touch, and he just had just started college, but then left and wanted to go to acting school. And long story short, he's now going to go to a training program in, in London at Guildhall. But I, we've had a friendship for the past two years and, and it's been a really wonderful sort of mentoring relationship. And it started out because I was playing his mother and we, we got to spend time together during that play and then stayed in touch as he was figuring out what program he wanted to apply to and, and how he wanted to where he saw his life going. And that's just been really wonderful. He's a wonderful actor. And it's when you see someone who is committed at a, at a young age and really, really knows what he wants and, and is going after it, it's wonderful to encourage that and to offer advice when you can, but to be a sounding board. I mean, one of the things that also happened during the pandemic, I, Brown Theater Department reached out to me because the year, school year was so just cockamamie, for lack of a better word, in terms of the theater program, right? Like, how do you, how do you do theater? And they reached out to alums to talk to people who were graduating from the theater department who were in the process of graduating. And I struck up a Zoom relationship with, I was matched with a senior and we ended up having conversations that have now gone on for months and months and months. And he's since graduated and is now in New York and is making his way. But it's been a really wonderful thing to talk about what he's thinking about. One of the things I was worried about when it was in terms of talking in terms of addressing the pandemic was you don't want to say to someone who's 21 and just starting out in the world like forget it man our business is over it doesn't exist like you don't that's not a helpful comment nor do i believe it in the long term but in the short term i mean things have been pretty dire so for so many reasons to state the obvious but what i found i didn't even have to 
we didn't even have to really, of course, we addressed the pandemic and what it's like to learn virtually and what he was thought, studying and thinking about. But the reality is he's so excited for what lies ahead that this is a blip. This is a blip for him. And he's looking ahead and adapting. He, he's done, I've, I've got to see him perform in these inc- actually incredible Zoom performances that he's done in various projects where people are all over the world, not just different coasts. They are, he's working with artists all over the place. He did a project that I learned, I never knew about this sugar strike in Hawaii where it, it was this period of history all about unionization with various, the, the, the hierarchy of Asian workers at banana plantations in Hawaii. It, it was this fascinating, someone's doctorate thesis that he became a part of. It was a musical, he was, it was beautiful. So that I got so much from him. I hope he got a little bit back for me in terms of what, what the business is about. But, but mentoring is so much a part of our business because as I said in the beginning, it's a, it, you learn by doing and it's an apprenticeship. You, you have to watch others work in order to figure out how you will work. And I remember very clearly going back to Trinity and looking at these actors and seeing and going, Ooh, I like that. I want to try to do that. And Ooh, I don't like that. I don't, okay. I don't. And, and then also looking at people, how people treat other people. That's no way to make a productive work environment. I don't want to do that. And that makes everyone give their best effort. I want to, I want to, I like people who make rooms like that happen. Now I'm talking about directors, the environment the directors create. And it's an apprenticeship. So I feel that whenever I talk to younger actors, it's my job to certainly, you know, tell them what I know or what I think. And, but it's, it's important for me for it to go both ways, for me to learn about their approach. And one of the things that I find so rewarding is that the business has changed so dramatically since I got out of college. I had paper scripts that I picked up from my agent's office. We, PDFs didn't exist. <laughs> and we still had answering machines. You know, I mean, it, it's, a di- it's a different world that everything you did, you did in person. Again, the pandemic, for all of its challenges, has also meant that you can audition for anything anywhere. I mean, you can, you can self-tape, you know. Yeah, that's, that's the, probably the best that came out of it, right? One of the best things that came out of it. I've talked to directors who said, like, thank God, like, I don't have to be in a room for 12 hours. You know, we, I can go through and at my own time and, and look at people. You know, we like to think it matters when we're in the room, but I, I can respect the fact that you can make choices just as well in other venues. But going back to the mentoring, I just want to say that one of the things I tell young actors is that you never know who is going to be in this for the long haul? And it's a word of warning, which is that you may be working with people in your college program and you think, oh my God, they're, they're not going to be in this business. And lo and behold, 20 years later, they are one of Broadway's finest producers or they are making movies or doing the soundtrack or do it. I mean, you just don't know how things are going to go and never discount people's potential because you may be getting all the lead parts and doing all the big things in college. But in when you enter the professional world, that, that may not be the case. I mean, I, I, I know one actor who was star at Brown and so wonderful and did all the character roles, but it took him a long time for his body to catch up with when he graduated as a 21-year-old, but had only been playing old men. It's a, it's a tricky transition. When you have to, we all have to grow into who we are. But when you're in the real world, you're going to be cast as you are, not, not as the nine checkoff character that you play so well in college. So, <laughs> so you just, you, you need to, to know that, that those, the people you work with make work with your 
fellow students. I know people who have started theater companies with people that they graduated with. I know people that have put together a group of creatives, designers, people who they then can make make work with. Because the business, if you're lucky, will find you and will give you work. But you have to you also have to make work. And and the only way sometimes to get work is to do work. And the only way to do work is to make it on your own. So then you can invite people in the business to see it and they go, oh my God, you're just right for this part here. It's it's important to, to keep your community around you. And it's amazing to me that the, the relationships that I made as an apprentice at Williamstown, wonderful actress who I deeply admire, who I befriended when I was 20 and she was in her 40s and we're still in touch and she's coming to see this play that I'm doing now. And I mean, you just, you just don't know how these things are going to go and that these relationships yeah, no. are essential to your, to your well-being, to your growth as an actor. And you just keep those connections going. People that, that will disappear from your life. And then like that director that showed up 30 years later, I mean, you just don't, you just don't know how it's going to play out. Yeah. I feel like that's 100%. And I feel like it sounds like you found that really early to lead with these values, like work hard and be nice to people. And it's, it's, it's very yes. simple, but it sounds like you started that early and then you respected all the relationships you you built along the way. Well, when you see people behaving badly, you see what it does to everyone around them. And whether it's a rehearsal hall or a movie set, it's it's contagious. And that and that bad attitude will infect everyone. So just knock it off is my feeling. Like just do do the work. Like the work is what is most important. So do right. the work and don't get in the way of the work. Now, it doesn't mean the work is good all the time or that you don't completely mess it up or make a fool of yourself or make a bad choice that you have to rethink and all of that stuff happens. But if you are doing it for the benefit of the play and the company or the the scene that you're shooting, what, whatever it is, th then it, it makes it better for everyone around you. And it doesn't mean that the work is always good. Don't get me wrong, but it means that you're, you're putting your best foot forward. And that's, and that's really key. And the people that I admire the most are the ones who make everyone's life around them better. And sometimes that's just by putting your head down and doing the work. And sometimes it's about giving you a word of encouragement or telling you about their process or one of the things I also tell young actors is don't be shy. Like people listen to me, right? People love talking about what they do. Like here I'm blabbing on, but don't be shy about asking people what they do because they will tell you. And we are nothing but a series of, I love reading biographies, memoirs, because I like reading how other people live their life. Yeah. And it's so important to, there's, so, there's not one way. There, there's so many ways and there really isn't one way in this business. So find out, look at all the different ways. And say, ooh, I like that, don't like that, try that, don't try that. Ooh, that worked for them, that doesn't work for me. Do do all of that. Yeah. Comparison is never the key, but being inspired by others and see how they do it can can help you. A hundred percent. Comparison can literally lead you into a black hole of despair. Because there's someone's always gonna be doing something you wish you were doing. That's also the like didn't get that one or didn't even have the chance to do that one and look what look what look at their career you know everyone's always got a better career but you also have to not let that fill you with comparisons but be inspired by it like look how did they get there how did they do that look what did they what what was their what was their journey and that's that's always fun for me to learn about with other actors yeah i want i don't know if this can be a, a short answer but is it very different to mentor young women versus men just because of everything that has gone down in this industry and 
we don't have to go deep into me too or anything, but is there a certain responsibility you feel like when you're mentoring young women versus? It's a really good question. I, I think no is, is the short answer that it's, it's this, I would give the same advice to both, but I, I will say what one piece of advice I, I give to anyone and everyone is as an actor, the only power we have is to say no. The other thing we can do is share with people when we've had a bad experience. If someone doesn't treat you well and, or doesn't treat someone else well, when you hear that, when someone asks you, Oh, I'm going to work with this director. What do you know about them? And you tell them the truth and you say, actually, this happened and I saw it and you should know that going in. I'm not telling you not to work with this person, but I'm saying, know that this happened and that we really, we have to share. I think one of the things that's come out of me too, actually, is that there was just such a, a silence around so many things. My experience, I mean, I grew up at the height of, I mean, it's always been around. Let's just put it that way. But the kinds of things that I saw going on, there was a, a silent network among women. You would just say, don't go in that room with that person. You would, but you would never tell anyone else. Like it never went to the, it never went anywhere else because it wouldn't ever go anywhere else. Right. You, you just knew there were certain people to avoid. And that is still true today. We now are beginning to have mechanisms for making change and making sure people don't do hurtful things to people. But it's, it's always going to be with us. We just have to find a different way of operating with it. The, the short answer is. No, I, I would tell the same. I, I find young people to be so astute and alert and smart about this stuff that my advice is beside the point. I just tell them if you see, it's nice if you see something, say something, but literally use the, use your role as, as a person who is in this business to advise other people and tell them the truth about other professionals who maybe are not acting in a professional manner. And, and that's, and we have to, we have to stop bad behavior and it's, it's up, it's up to, it's up to us to help stop the spread. And, and institutionally, the theater needs a do-over. We, we are, you know, we are in a, we are at a very particular time right now. And when the hierarchy looks the same, sounds the same, is the same, that doesn't get anyone anywhere. We got to mix it up. We got to have every kind of person in every leadership position so that that they have a vision for the theater that is not all white, all male. Mm -hmm. That's not the theater. That's not the world. That that can't be the case. Yeah. Theater should reflect the rest of the world. It's what we want. It, yeah. It, it's going to take, it's going to take time. The other thing is we can't expect to, to wave a magic wand and have it change, but that we cannot tread water any longer. We, we have to make seismic shifts in the industry and representation is, is the first key step because if, if we if the if the theater is to reflect the world we know, the world we know is full of many, many different people and we have to make art that includes all of those people and is led by all different different points of view. And and that's 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 the only way we can really make good art going forward. That that's all there is to it. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, and speaking of good art, I do want to end on a high note. So what fascinates you today? And beyond that, how can people connect with you? What fascinates me is that this, people have been saying the theater is dead for hundreds of years and it's not. So what fascinates me is why people continually say that, you know, it's over. All they're going to be are one person plays and two, you know, two person. We're never going to be able to 
do this, that, and the other thing. And what is it that keeps this art form generating, self-generating, perpetuating? It keeps going. I, I find it fascinating because it, again, it comes out of the Greeks. The, it, you know, it comes, it, it, go, it goes way back. We've been doing this for a long time and it's going to, and I really do believe it will keep going, but I'm, I'm perpetually fascinated by what changes will happen going forward and how, and how we make this art form. And there was another part of your question. What was the other part? Yeah, absolutely. How can, how can listeners connect with you or, or find you online? I'm terrible about this stuff, but I'm on Facebook. I'm, I have a website. I do a little bit of Instagram and I live in New York. I'll meet you on the corner. I'll meet you in Central Park. Yeah. <laughs> I literally run into in Chinatown once. That's right. This yeah. is how it happens. Yeah, exactly. Human connection. <laughs> I, I prefer that festival. Yeah, I love that. Oh, this was such a treat. You just gave us so much. And I think it's going to, our listeners, our community is going to love this. I know that. Thank you for your really thoughtful questions, because that that's what makes a conversation, even if I did most of the talking. I I appreciate the questions. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you were here to answer them. We wanted to hear from you. So thanks again for your your time and and your, you know, hectic your hectic schedule and i hope it's going to be a great run for you thank you thank you man what a great what a great conversation i i'm impressed with her passion honestly like to stay that engaged and that excited about the theater and acting and just living this lifestyle on the long term like i know 100% i mean yeah i'm in awe i just she has, and then she has this, I don't know, just this beautiful presence. And she is just, she's the ultimate actress. She's like the perfect actress in, in, in that way that she does everything with integrity. She's so true to the art form of uh, theater and, and acting. And she does a bunch of TV show. I mean, she has a quite a impressive IMDb. She does, she does it all. And then audio tapes and she has a very healthy, way of looking at or talking about the the business side of the business and and how she talks about that as that is almost profession on its own which i think it is and it's it doesn't matter if an agent and manager and people you still have to put so much effort and time into that aspect of it getting the job yeah pounding the pavement and like Again, another episode, Shango was saying, like, you can pound the pavement and there's still no guarantee that you're going to you're going to get the gig. And so whether you have a manager and an agent or you don't or you're just knocking on doors, putting in the work is so important. And I think that's true for every type of artist or professional as writers and musicians and makers. These these truths are evident. Yeah. Yeah, and she touched on that when when times are quiet and there have been times where it's she said she might we have this thought like am I ever gonna work again and and what am I without the profession? Because she is just that like I said, she's just the kind of poster child for for an actor, an actor in New York and and that means you have to travel. You have to travel for theater and you're on the road quite a bit and, and at the same time she has this I don't know. I think she's very, she has definitely her rituals. I wish we could have dived a little bit more in there, but she did share that she runs in the morning 
in Central Park every morning or she does Pilates. So, and you can tell she takes good care of herself. She looks very vibrant and healthy and that's her instrument. And I don't know, she's just like this perfect, like timeless classical as in she has this classic look too. You know what I mean? She does. And I know exactly what you mean. I, I've, I've met people in the theater who just sort of embodied that level of just professionalism and character and passion. And, you know, it really comes through in the work that she's doing, you know, mentoring other professional actors and helping people along that path, because it's not an easy path. It's not. No, it's I mean, it's it is a tough industry. And yeah, this was very inspiring. I'm very inspired by her, just her talking to her and, and she gave us a generous amount of information. And, and then I was thinking about it for quite a while after talking to her. And then I remembered I had also met her in life, in real life once in Chinatown. My husband introduced us and I just remember like she has that energy. She has that like that vibrancy about her. I don't know. I keep going back to that, but I'm very inspired and impressed by the longevity of her career and work and i hope to see her on stage soon yeah absolutely and same you know what i think it comes down to one of the things that she alluded to and she never said this she never you know talked about like spirituality or zen or anything but one of the things in in zen about reaching enlightenment is this idea of chopping wood and carrying the water so much of the creative life as we've heard in so many of these interviews is just persistence and consistency and doing the work. And so chopping wood, carrying water, it's like you keep your head down or you keep your head up, whatever the metaphor is, but you keep at it. One day you look up and you've got 20 years of experience as an actor or a writer, or whoever you are, and other people then see you as the mentor and the success story. And it's not so much about feeling successful in our own right, in our own mind. No, but it is that. And it's, 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 um, good to simplify it like that. And, and, you know, I even said to her, like, you really, you knew that you had to work hard and be a nice person. She's just been consistent and persistent along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that she, she pointed out that it's important to pay attention to people's behavior and to know who to trust and who to avoid. And, you know, I think it's something that Helen Hunt brought up as well, which is we're moving towards an accountability culture. And so Jennifer and Helen and all of these folks have come up through the era of prior to Me Too. And even now, like Helen said, being being nice or being hard isn't going to protect you from being assaulted by a person on the job. You know, be, being kind to others and, and sharing information is important. Absolutely. Yeah, it's fun to start to see the similarities in those artists that are in it in the long run and what they have in common. And that is waking up in the morning and doing the work and all the extra stuff that that entails for the actor. You know, you want to be healthy and take care of yourself. And so there's all that that goes into it. And it's not, you can't just slack off one week and work the next. It's like a every day, you're in it every day. And they both talked about like comparing these actresses, but, you know, Helen Hunt talked about fellowship, the importance of it. And Jennifer talked about how important it is for actors to be friends with playwrights. And so that's also kind of comes back to our community where people, uh, artists from different disciplines connect and can create together. And it's just so, so good to hear. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we're seeing inside that group, right? Is that people are coming together and connecting. Yeah. 
The Artist Inclusive Podcast is brought to you by the Artist Inclusive Facebook group and artistinclusive.com. Learn more about Artist Inclusive at our website or join our free Facebook group. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts and share this message with somebody that you think would enjoy this podcast. This is how you're able to reach more engaged and impactful artists just like you.